contrary to popular opinion, God doesn't sit around heaven with his jaw clenched and his arms folded in constant disapproval of us in everything we do. Somehow, you know, we have this, um, we get that, and you all heard me say this before, we get this view of God that every time, you know, that he's constantly looking for a way to punish us. And I've preached before, if you haven't heard it, it's on a podcast where I talk about how much God loves you, how long he's loved you. He's not frowning. He's not ticked off at his children for all the time we trip up and fall flat on our faces. Remember this and hear this. Our God is a loving father. And believe it or not, we, his children, are precious in his sight. How awesome that is to remember. You know, I think a lot of times we, we forget that. Now, in today's message, we're going to, you can go to First Peter, I'm going to tell you, by the way, because we're going to spend some time over there, and I've tried to, we don't have a lot of scripture today, y'all. Today's message, we're going to catch a glimpse of God's pure delight in us. You hear me? I want you to see how much God delights in you, and even the way he refers to us. We're going to learn how favorable that really, really is. You're going to find some of this really pretty amazing. I mean, I, I always do. I'm, I, and I encourage you, when you're feeling bad about yourself, go look at what, how God sees you. I mean, we, we have a tendency, man, to really get be so hard on ourselves. And, and, and look at you. You sitting in a church. On a Sunday morning, you think you did that on your own? You, didn't, you don't think it was God that stirred that up in you? Every good thing that you desire to do, that comes from the Lord. And if you desire to do good, then you got to give God glory because that's his spirit working in you. You steady praying for the Holy Spirit, use me. You don't think it was him that used you to drive over here today? You didn't stir that up on your own. You better understand that every good thing in you that you desire to do, it was God that gave that to you. Amen? Amen. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Well, I guess I better get my Bible too. <laughs> I'm opening it up on my phone, man. 1 Peter chapter 2. When you're there, say amen. And we're going to go, I want the second Peter, first Peter chapter 2 verses, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. It was hard for me not to read the whole book. There's so much, but the context of it, let me start with the context of this. Y'all know I always like to put things in context. Pastor is a real stickler. Okay, if you go on the MIT, you, when I say this stuff, man, y'all better be listening. <laughs> okay, you planning on going to ministers and training class? Context, context, and guess what the last thing I'm gonna say? Context. Okay, so just remember that you know always keep things in context. So the context of chapter two, um, verses one through twelve, start in chapter one, verses twenty-two through twenty-three. He says, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again. You hear what he said? You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. And he talks about the grass, whether the flowers played but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And he goes on and says, therefore. Now, you know, any time a, a chapter of the Bible, a book of the Bible starts with therefore, that means that it is continuing upon the previous statement. So it says, therefore, and it's therefore built on what we just read over in, verse, uh, in chapter 1. Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk so that by it 
you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Verse 7. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they display, I'm sorry, they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Ooh, if I don't get to that part. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Past tense. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Because I might not get back, I might not get this far in this message because it's a lot. Live good lives among the pagans. He didn't say live good lives among the church folk. You're always trying to impress church folk. You're trying to live so good in their eyes. God said, I ain't worried about how you look to them. Look at how you live out there in the world. How they talking about you? What they saying about you? Are you living what you saying? Are you living what you preaching? All right? Live such lives among the pagans, not the church folk, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Amen. Now, y'all see why this, this ain't even, I ain't even started, man. This, this was preaching to me. For some strange reason, those of us who have known the Lord since we were young have a tendency to outgrow a close friendship with, with, with God. You know, if your experience was anything like mine, okay, and my mom used to send me to church, you know, she was, I had one of them families, they didn't take you. Now, Mother Bell's mom, she was going, you had to go. I don't care what you did Saturday night. I don't care what you did on Saturday night. Where you was on Saturday night, Sunday morning, if you was under her roof, you was getting up and you was going to church. I don't care what you got to say. Get up. <laughs> that she didn't play. Now, my mother was the kind that would send me, you know, 10th Street Baptist. Get me all dressed up. Sometimes I show up. Sometimes I be in the hood. <laughs> but sometimes I showed up. So if your experience was anything like mine, I always had like an intimate relationship with God, man. I mean, I always knew I could talk to him, even when I was a child. You know, I, I don't know if, 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 if you guys remember that when you were a kid and you felt like you can just talk to God. I remember one time I had the most intimate conversation with the Lord. I was in the county jail and I was begging to get out. <laughs> I was on the floor. <laughs> Lord, please, <laughs> you get me out of this one. <laughs> Woo! I tell you, trouble will, trouble will get you in a real intimate relationship 
with the Lord. I had a real intimate feeling toward him. And, 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 you, and it brought, it, when I came into my adult life, well into the adult world, in adult, in, in, when, you, when you're an adult, you talk to God different. When you're a child, you'll talk about the most trivial things. You know, the, the, everything you'll talk to God about. And you just, you know what, you just had a childlike faith, that confidence, that he cared about even the smallest stuff that you would ask him. And he met the need, and there was nothing too small. There was nothing too big to ask him, just like a child talking to his mother or his dad. You know, when I was a kid, I would talk to God like that. I would just pray and just ask for stuff and thank God for stuff and all that kind of thing. You know, you get older, you know, things change. He was just there, you know, like always there, and you felt free to relate to him in that intimate way. Now, somewhere between childhood and adulthood, however, a distance kind of grows, you know, and we feel increasingly less close to God. Sort of, of a fear builds up. You know, kind of like maybe because, you know, by then we've done a number of things. And, you know, and it's, and it's like we're not pleased with the things we, we do. And certainly not proud of them. And maybe even ashamed of them. You know, I'll, Lord, yeah, I ain't going to touch that. Yeah, because, you know, all of us have a past, and I have plenty of things that uh, I, I, I'm definitely ashamed of. You know, there are a lot of things, man. I mean, God's been so good to me. And though we know he forgives, and though we know he wipes our slate clean, we feel that those things have caused that sense of distance. And, and, and you know, we'd be like, how could we ever feel as close to him again? For years I've wondered, why we don't have the closeness in adult life that we had when we were children? That open closeness, you know, that, that children feel. When I was made aware, a friend of mine made me aware of a little uh, children's book. I was talking about this thing. And it's a great little children's book. It's, it's sort of like disarming, and the theology ain't the best. I'm going to take those kids. Theology ain't the best, you know. Kids ain't thinking all deep and theological. But it's a series of letters that children have actually written, like real kids wrote these letters. And it's, it's, it's awesome. One little letter from Alan, age nine, reads, Dear, oh, let me say little kid. Dear God, I saw the Grand Canyon last summer. Nice piece of work. <laughs> what kind of kids talk? Kids talk like that. He's like, nice work. <laughs> Here's another one. Kid said, "Dear God and Jesus, I'm a big follower of you guys. I root for both of you all the time. Keep those miracles coming. <laughs> Your best friends, Stephen, age eight. <laughs> Here's another one. The next one." Mike, age 11, dear God, I think that you are very kind and generous. Can you see if I can get a bigger allowance? <laughs> you see, there's no need too small, no request too great. Then there's this one, Marty, age nine. Dear God, I wish I could spend all my time with you. We could go to beautiful places together like Paris, we could fill all the world with love. We could make every kid and grown-up smile. My daughter would pray like this. I don't think you can <laughs> I don't think you can do it alone. Why don't you make me a special helper? My family and my teachers will understand. I'm willing to even give up some kid stuff. It will be for a very good cause. How about it? <laughs> kids write these letters with all the love in my heart Marty P.S. I would like to take my pink and white dress with me if that's okay 
<laughs> just the closeness, man, when you read when you read these letters from these kids, just like the sense of caring. Like there's, there's nothing too big, nothing too small, nothing that's not interested in you that he's not interested in. But in the process of the period of time, as we get to be adults, something seems to happen. There seems to be a sense of distance. I think if I were to ask, if I was to just go around this room and ask some adults to write a letter and take like just a rambling, you know, sample, you know, of, of, of what, they, what they write, I think it would be altogether different from what we just heard from these kids. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I think probably there will be written across the pages of those letters feelings of guilt and fear. And some sort of pleading for relief from these feelings of distance as a result of the fear and the guilt. We have so much to learn from children. So much. That's why, for the next couple minutes, I want us to turn to our Bibles and get a rather quick, simple profile of God's appraisal or his estimation of us. You hear me? I want y'all, when y'all leave here today, I want you to start seeing how God sees you. Forget about how everybody else thinks of you. You know what you're living in this world, and I'm going to talk about it in this sermon. You're passing through this world, man. They, you, you can't. Hang your hopes on how people feel about you. You cannot. They did not love Jesus. They are not going to love you. You hear me? So you can't just be hanging all of your, you know, your emotions and letting somebody who could care less about how you live in your life and what your day is going like, you can't let them man, dominate your emotions, your day, your feelings, your life. You hear me? Let's see what, it, what they say about what God has to say about you in Scripture. He, the Lord, has taken us, taken me in my brokenness, and he has made something beautiful of our lives. I mean... I, I think, I, you know, because when you come from, when you come from a mess, you thank God when he blessed. I, hey, I know it rhymes, bars. <laughs> when, when you come from a big mess, you thank the Lord when he blesses you. My family, our history, my grandfather and his sister, they come out of slavery. They was owned by a family in South Georgia and sold to a family in Mississippi, okay? And we didn't have the greatest education. It was in the, probably in the 60s, it was in the 70s before anybody ever graduated of college. Oh yeah, my grandfather, everything he learned, he learned in the U.S. military, everything. He developed a part to a, a tank, a little thing making terror. I don't know what to do. He got the patent for it, made money for it the rest of his life. Okay? Hands-on kind of dude. Really wasn't a great reader. Wasn't highly educated. A lot of us come from backgrounds, messy, uh, uneducated. You know, where we are, we strive hard to make something of ourselves. And the Lord pulls us out of that mess and blesses us. I think Children write those simple letters and have that simple faith because they really believe God believes in them. And God loves them and cares for them. That changes the way you view yourself and the way you view him if you believe he does love you. I want us to leave here with, this, with that same sense that God loves us and still cares for us. Psalm 103, you can turn there if you, if you like the, the 103rd division of Psalm. We're going to go to quite a few scriptures. And it says, bless the Lord, all my soul, 
O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. And then he lists them. If you look at it, he's going to list them for you. You wonder what God thinks of you? He pardons all your iniquities. Not some, not half, but all. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. He satisfies our years with good things so that our youth is renewed like an eagle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> Verse 11, high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgression from us. You got to start believing these things. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our brain. He is mindful that we are but dust. I find that, that that's very relieving right there. He understands our limits. He realizes our struggles. He knows how far that pressure can, can, how far we can take it, how much pressure we can take. I used to use an analogy in Sunday school. There's another reason to come to Sunday school. I used to use an analogy in Sunday school that before a challenge, a weight, a burden comes to you, it has to go to God. He knows how much you can bear. So when the challenge comes, he's doing this. No, he can't handle that one. Okay? Then another one comes. He can handle this. Go and lay that that one. Okay? He knows how much you can bear. There is no burden that is upon you that God hasn't weighed first. He already knows that you can handle it before it gets to you. He knows how much you can bear. He knows, our, he knows how much we can bear. And he knows how extensive we can handle the test. He knows how we're put together. He realizes that we're really nothing but a handful of dust. He created us from the dust. His expectations aren't that great. Oh, you need to hear that. His expectations aren't that great. We set up our expectations, not God. And we don't take our cues from him, nor he from us. We kind of give ourselves this unrealistic agenda. And then we don't live up to it. We feel like he brings judgment down on us. So it's your expectation set for you. Not what he set for you. You set that for yourself. We have set up our expectations. Not God. But this verse says he remembers. He knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. What is his agenda for us? Turn from Psalms to Jeremiah 29. This is a familiar verse for most of I'm the, anything I'm, All these scriptures you're going to see, you're going to probably be real familiar with them. I just want you to remember to go to them and read them. I'm serious. You, when you go out in this world, if you are not equipping yourself before you step out the door of your house, you're walking out there butt naked. You ain't got on nothing. You need to have some type of armor on, man. You can't just go out there, no sword, no shield, no helmet of salvation, no breastplate of righteousness, your feet not shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You just run around out there nude thinking you're going to fight this fight. It ain't going to happen. You're going to take a beating. Get this word before you leave the house. And don't just get some scripture that tells you about good things about yourself. 
The world going to tell you all, all this bad stuff about you. There's enough of that out there. You need to start hearing about you. Jeremiah 29. When you get to 29, look at verse 11. And then verse 12. You want to know what his agenda is for you tomorrow morning? What his agenda is for you the next day? These are his plans. He wrote them originally to Israel now, but the application, they fit us. Jeremiah speaking for the Lord, God says, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. My agenda, you would be, my agenda would be plans for your welfare, not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. Now, isn't that wonderful? I have plans for you, and they are plans for your welfare and not for calamity. This is the, 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 the version I'm reading. When it say welfare, it don't mean a check. Just know that. It don't mean an EBT card. <laughs> God bless me with the EBT. No, that's not what we're talking about here. Plans to give you a future and to give you a hope. I had to leave so many scriptures like that out. But I did want to go to Lamentations. Turn with me to Lamentations. Told you we're going to see if we're going to hit some scripture. Now, Lamentations, that's that little journal that Jeremiah kept after the fall of Jerusalem over Lamentations chapter 3. If you really want to understand some of these things these prophets are talking about and, and why, you know, they, they were so emotional about some of the things, just go look at what happened. Go look at what happened. Jesus prophesied what was going to happen. Well, the word prophesied what was going to happen. And Jerusalem fell more than once. But when that place fell, it was ugly. I mean, it was, it was ugly, brutal-type war where they cut off all the water coming into the city. They would besiege it and encircle around it. Nobody could go in. Nobody could come out. And they would just starve you out. It got so ugly, mothers started eating their children. That's how bad it got. People started eating babies. A lot of people died. Jesus told them, when you see this coming, don't go into the city. Y'all remember that? Jesus said, when you see that day coming, do not go into the city, but go to the hills. Where folks go? Yep, right to the city. Don't listen. Went right out there in the city. But we're going to look at Lamentations chapter 3. If you're not familiar with the book, it's you know, right after the book of Jeremiah. Locate the verse 25 and 26. As we, you know, we're going to build on this appraisal that God has of us. Chapter 3 of Lamentations, verses 25, 26. Let me start at verse 21. This I recall to my mind. This is verse 21. Therefore, I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. You hear how long it lasts? Never ceases. Most people I meet who have a need are in a holding pattern. Some kind of holding pattern. You have something on the horizon, maybe the not too distant horizon, that you're trusting God for. He is good to those who wait for him. He is good to those who seek him. So what did he just say? Did he say just wait? Did he say just seek? It's like a combination of the two. Are you waiting for him? You seek him and he'll be good to you. You have nothing to fear. Nothing from the Lord you have to fear. Let's turn over to the, the little letter uh, 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 to the Colossians. Go to Colossians in the New Testament, chapter 1. Now, you'll see we're working our way back toward 1 Peter. We're working our way back there. But turn to Colossians, chapter 1, verse 12. When you're there, say amen. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, look at that. Before you think 
the next time God's coming down on you, look at what Colossians has to say. Remember Colossians 1.12. You haven't qualified yourself. You hear me? He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Why? Because he has done a deliverance in your life. He has delivered you, delivered me, delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Literally, he has transferred us to the kingdom of the son of his love. That's what some translations say. If he wants his son there and is surrounded by love, and if he wants you and me there, surrounded by love, the same treatment he gives his son, he will give to us. He's going to be good to us. One more book. One more. Um, the book of James chapter 1. Sometimes it's just kind of nice just thumb through the scriptures and find promises that tell us about what God thinks about us. If you haven't been doing this, you need to start. You need to start seeing what God says about you. It will change you. I'm telling you, it will change your opinion of yourself. You're not greater than God. He ain't condemning you. Why are you condemning yourself? Why can't you let it go? God can forgive you. You can't. You can't forgive yourself. And he says, I have done it. You're going you're gonna to understand when you read, go back and read this, most of this is in the past tense. This is not in the present. He has, he's not talking about, I'm going to forgive you. Uh, I might forgive you. I will. He says he's done it. It's done. He has. It's in the past. You just have to believe it. Especially in this day, in a world that continue, this world continually tells us all the things they have against us. Oh, they, they, yeah. And all the things they see wrong with us. You know, Christians, man, they, I don't know about them. It's kind of nice to find the things God says about us that are affirming. James 1, verse 17 and 18 Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of shifting shadow. Literally, that last title phrase says, or shadow of turning. In other words, God's light, God's gifts come constantly and they come even when we turn away from him. You hear me? His gifts that he gives aren't about you. They're about him. They glorify him. There's no variation in his giving. No shifting shadow that causes him to become moody and hold back his gifts to us. He's not like us. In the exercise of his will, he brought, forth, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. You know what? All of this could be wrapped up in the statement Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. A little part of that verse says, if God be for us, who could be against us? I want you to remember that for a long time. God is for us. Did you hear me? Say it with me. God is for us. Say it again. God is for us. One more time. God is for us. Now, I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that the next time you fail. 
I want you to remember that the next time you fall. I want you to remember that the next time you sin. God is for you. And if he is for you, there's nobody that can be against you. Do you hear me? Amen. God is for us. And I want you to remember that for a long time. Never. I hate to say never, but you should never. <laughs> Man, you should never tell your children that if they make a mistake, that God won't love them no more. Don't you do that, man. That is heresy. There's no grace in that. None. God's for us. God's for you. God's for your children. He's not going to turn his back on you forever because you made one mistake. So, let me get this right. So, if you made a mistake, that means God made a mistake. He chose you. He saved you. God, God was wrong? Oh, no. Uh-uh. No, what he does is perfect. What he does is perfect. Now, now I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, you ain't perfect. I ain't perfect. I'm going to make mistakes. If you be around me, you're going to see mistakes. Because I am an imperfect human being. But God doesn't make mistakes. And he has chosen you and he has destined you to be with him in glory. You might not know how it's going to happen. You're going to be the most surprised person in heaven. Oh, yeah. You're going to be up there for years. For years. You're going to be up there dancing, shouting. <laughs> for years you're going to be up there celebrating I know my wife ain't thought about me yet because she's too busy hey 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 <laughs> I know she's celebrating and I know all because you know how many folks them preceded her and they all the family up there and if you know how them folks like to shout and run oh that, that I'm telling you yeah, you know they say the day is, is it a thousand years with the Lord so they ain't even got the Sunday yet <laughs> oh my goodness now here's the grace for your children you can tell them child even though you do wrong God will continue and I will continue to love you God is for you God being for us means who could ever be against us? That will amount, that won't amount to anything. Now, all of this leads me to an idea I got the other day. <laughs> I mean, I mean, y'all, like, sometimes I'm, I'm, I guess I'm kind of weird, you know, because I'll get things rolling around in my head, you know, and... You know, like I'll hear a song title like a for a children's song or something. And then all of a sudden I'll change the lyrics <laughs> in my head. Uh, I was humming that little children's tune. Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world. <laughs> yeah, a little black and white. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> I thought, well, what about all the grown-ups? What about, what about us? What about all the grown-ups? So I changed the words to that little song, Jesus loves his, he loves his adult children too. <laughs> all the grown-ups of the world. <laughs> Red and yellow, black and white. We're all precious in this sight. Jesus loves all the teens and the adults of the world. So, so why do we think his love is just for the, for the kids? It's just for the little children. Now, they innocent and disarming and they sweet and, you know, and, you know, he loves all of the grown-ups too, all of the teenagers. He is for us as a whole. Now, the reason, the reason I've begun 
I started studying in this vein because in 1 Peter, I come across six lovely portraits. I call them paintings, word pictures that Peter paints. Six specific titles God gives his people. I found in verse 4 through 10 of chapter 2 in 1 Peter, where we've started at, there's some beautiful little pinpoint portraits. Like, they're all word pictures. And I love, you know, pictures, especially when they come from the scriptures. I love porch art anyway. You know, I don't know. I'm not a real artsy, you know, fartsy kind of dude. You know, I mean, I can't draw a straight line. You know, I really can't. But, boy, I can paint you a plate, brother. Boy, you, hey, yo, you let me get some food. You let me get some food, yo. Hey. <laughs> I told you, hey, boy, I can paint a plate, though. <laughs> I might not be able, I might not be on a, on a piece of canvas like this. But, boy, you let me, let me get a saute pan and some groceries. I'll show you something. <laughs> but there are some great word pictures. <laughs> there's some great word pictures <laughs> and there, and I love word pictures I, I, I do love art uh, when we used to go to the art gallery downtown on, on 14th and Peachtree we used to love going down there you know and they'll give you like headset and they'll have like we went to see the Norman Rockwell exhibit and it's beautiful man and you know I bought me one of them little knockoff Rockwells you know it was a little black girl and they're escorting her in the, in the school and, and the white folks don't want her in there. So you see tomatoes and stuff all up against the wall that they were throwing at this little girl. And you just see her just as proud, just marching in between them dudes. And them dudes just stepping with her in between them. That's an awesome, it's an awesome painting. And, you know, this, the description of it, when you're going through the art gallery, when people tell you about, you know, that art and why it was created and what it was depicting and, you know, what was the, the, the artist's frame of reference. It's amazing. Pictures. They're extremely encouraging the pictures from Scripture and affirming and positive. Right away, verse 4 of 1 Peter 2, the emphasis falls on Christ. Coming to him, it says. By the way, the context is in verse 3. Like I said, context. If you have tasted the goodness of the kindness of the Lord, <clears throat> then it says, coming to him, verse 4 continues, as to a living stone, remember that word picture, a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. When we come to the Lord, who is full of kindness, we come to the living stone. As we're going to read later, the choice stone, the cornerstone of the house of God, the family of God, the living stones, and you also as a living, as a living stone, so the first picture we have in, the, in Scripture is, we are living stones in a spiritual house. That's verse 5. As living stones, we are being built up as a spiritual house or a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Focus on what we are being built up as, a spiritual house. Maybe you haven't thought about it ever in your Christian life, but you are a stone in the building of God's church, the body of Christ. Remember Matthew 16, 18, Jesus is answering Peter, who has told him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father. And then he says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build my church. There's a construction project going on. Jesus Christ is, the, is in the process of building his family. It's called the ecclesia, the church. Those who were called out from the mass of humanity to become a part of God's family. You have been picked. Listen to these words. 
that talk about you. You have been picked, chosen, and called out. That's talking about you. He has quarried or, if you don't know what that word quarried means, he's dug you out from a rocky pit. He's dug you out of a quarry. He's quarried you out, dug you out from the pit of your sin. He has cut you and developed, and he's developing you into just the right size, the right shape, and preparation of development for his house. He's cutting you into just the right form and just the right piece so he can slide you right in. He's cut you from a pit of sin, and he is sliding you into place. You are a part of his building project. Peter calls us living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Think of it this way. Each time someone trusts Christ, trusts God, trusts Jesus as Savior, another stone is carved out from the pit. Submitted into place through the kind work of the Holy Spirit. Now, there have been many, many prophets of doom and gloom they're saying the church is done for. We have lost our effectiveness. We're fast passing off the scene. Our great days were yesterday, and they are not going to be that effective tomorrow. This is what folks say, these prophets of gloom and doom say about the church. I don't believe that. I believe God is still at work in his church. And I believe that his church will never stop growing until it has come to its fulfillment. He will not have the gates of hell prevail against it. He said that already. If you love music, <laughs> I, when I was writing this part, okay, I'll say it. Okay, so I played music when I was in school, okay? So, you know, I know how to read it a little bit. I used to. I'm, I can't hardly read it no more. So if you love music, you have seen crescendo signs in the score. Oh, look at that. She raised it. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it looks like a long arrowhead that begins like here on one side and gets larger and larger and larger. Am I right? You play music. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about you, Shamar. <laughs> oh, it gets larger and larger and larger. And, and, it, 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 and, as, and if you play an instrument or if you're singing that piece of music, you play harder, you blow harder, you sing louder as the conductor leads you at a crescendo. <laughs> so if you don't know what a crescendo is, let me put it in the way you'll understand. Okay, so I used to have a contract up in North Georgia, and there was people from all over the world. When I say all over the world, I mean all over, New Zealand, Poland, Belarus, uh, Ukraine, I mean Israel, everywhere. And Y'all might even know this place exists in Georgia. There is a camp in North Georgia. This thing is over five, 600 acres. They got an amphitheater that make that high five buys or that thing over in Lakewood look like trash. They, I'm serious. And they have two lakes. Horse, they got horseback range, soccer fields. They have an outdoor worship center where they, where they do the Sabbath and everything. And I used to have a contract to feed these people for over seven years I did this. And I took... Marshawn up there with me. I took, I took some of the kids, they used to come up there with me. And I would do this every summer for seven years, feeding a thousand people three meals a day. A thousand people. You know, and, we had, and then we had milk and cookie line at night. So they would, it would be, it would be 700 kids and 300 counselors. That's what we had up there. So it was a lot of people. But I lived with some people from Europe, okay? Now, they had to move me out of there. But I live with people from Europe, and there's some cultural differences. And talk about crescendo, okay? Crescendo. This is what I learned about crescendo. Man, they would have this music going, I mean, at night, and that music would be going. And I don't know if y'all heard that. Heard that. Y'all know that music. And then it keeps going up. And then when you think 
they're about to hit the crescendo. You think that, you know, like you, you think a brother going to come in and say, drop it. Something like that, right? <laughs> you know, y'all wait for that voice to say, drop it. And then the bass line to come in. But no. This thing would be poop that, poop that, poop that, poop that. Then they would get to the top where you think it's going to drop. And then they get, I told y'all I'm silly. Yeah, it would just get there. And it never would come down. I mean, it would just go from one, I mean, crescendo. And it was all crescendo. I mean, and they'd go, I mean, Oh, my God. Damn, so crescendo. That's what I learned about crescendo. You know, you be thinking, <laughs> all right, oh, Lord. That's what that, you know, when you hit the crescendo, that means, you know, you got to sing louder, blow harder, you know, play, play, <laughs> play the beat real loud. God's church is like that, that long crescendo mark. It's, it's, it's continuing to grow in volume. And in the process of growth, somewhere along the way, you, child of God, have been placed as a living stone in the building. None of it is futile effort. In verses 6 through 8, Peter describes the Lord Jesus accepted by some as Messiah, rejected by others. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in the Messiah shall not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, he quotes again from the Old Testament. The stone which the builders rejected has become the very cornerstone and stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this, and to this doom, they were also appointed. There's another way to live on this earth. There's, you can live like saints, you can live trusting God, but here he describes that there's another way to live on this earth, and that's just been described to you as a person doomed to a life of disappointment and ultimate condemnation. There are those who are living like that, and it all revolves around one's relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. To those of us who are living stones, Related to the Lord Jesus Christ, he has become for us the chief cornerstone. For those who have rejected him, he has become to them a stone of offense. Now back to our list. The first, we are, at first we are stones. It says we're stones. Living stones in the spiritual building. Second, we are priests in the same temple. And I think I'm going to wrap it up on this point. And, and we'll... Talk about the rest on Wednesday night. Now, I mentioned in, in, in verse 5 the reference that we are being built as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Look down to verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Mentions it again. It is always a happy experience of mine, personally, to tell believers every chance I get, we are our own priest. Did you hear me? We don't have to go to someone else to represent us to God. We don't have to go to some confessional, you know, or have somebody represent us before God. We, because of Christ's death, because of his causing the veil to be split apart, letting all of us into the holiest place of all, we now have the privilege, even the right, to represent needs to God. We also have the privilege of being a priest on behalf of one another. On behalf of one another. 
That's why we're admonished again and again in the New Testament to intercede for our brothers and our sisters, for our nation, for the lost, for ourselves. That's because we are priests. And priests do what? Verse 5, they offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. One of my favorite verses of Hebrews says this. Well, let me have you look at it. You, you can go over here. Chapter 13, verse 15. You there yet? Say amen. Okay. Hebrews 13, 15. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. You want to know what sacrifice includes? They include the sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of our lips that give thanks to his name. Years ago, the priests sacrificed blood, sacrificed animals on the altars with literal fire and literal smoke. Like real fire, real smoke, real animals, real blood. Now the literalness, literalness, literally, literally, that sounds like a big pun. Literally, literally, <laughs> let me stop. <laughs> oh, Y'all know I'm a mess. <laughs> now the literalness is gone, but the significance is still there. We as God's people, approved by God, born again by God's power, we now are not only parts of the same building being built. We are a part of the priesthood in the same building, in that same temple. Now back to Peter, 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. We are, off, we are offering up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. We are not all career teachers, but we are, all of us, career priests. Y'all hear me? I ain't just talking about, you, you, it ain't just the preachers. We are all not, we're, all of us aren't career teachers. We ain't all chefs. We ain't all this. We ain't all that. But all of us are career priests. And you're not fulfilling your role as a child of God if you're not carrying out the functions of a priest. I didn't make this up. This is what it says that you are called to do. If you're reading with me, you can clearly see that you are a priest. You're part of the priesthood. You've been drafted in. I'm sorry. And it says, if you're not carrying out the functions of a priest, priests are, to offer, are offering up sacrifices, representing needs to the Father. Priests offer up prayers. They bring spiritual sacrifices. They represent the needs of others. They traffic in spiritual truths throughout their day. Are you faithful in fulfilling your calling as a priest? Here's a third pen portrait and we're going to wrap up. We are a chosen race. You see back in verse 9. You are a chosen race. Now before anybody gets any feelings of self-pride self and all that. Before you start believing something that isn't true, let me remind you that you were not chosen because you were that great a deal. It wasn't about you. Over in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 7 and 8, there is a great three-verse analysis. I'll put it out there again because some of y'all going to run into these Hebrew Israelites and all these folks out here. Well, we already talked about that. Pastor already didn't teach them about that kind of stuff. But over there in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6, 7, and 8, there's a great three-verse analysis of why God chose his first nation. You turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, 6, 7, and 8, it says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, speaking to the people of the Hebrews. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, now, if you just read that verse 6, if you just stop right there, you say, that's a good deal. That ain't bad. But 
You, you, you'd be like, yeah, there must be something great about us. He picked us and nobody else. They, we, that's good. We, we better than anybody. <laughs> well, verse 7 to help take the edge off that one. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were in the fewest of all peoples. There wasn't a lot of y'all. You might say, well, why he choose us? Why would God choose us as part of his chosen nation? Verse 7. Because the Lord loves you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeems you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Now, I challenge you to find one statement that describes how great we are or how great the Hebrews were. You won't find it there. You, you, bro, you were slaves. You were slaves. I mean, come on now. You want to talk about you, how proud you are to be from over there. Y'all black folks were slaves to black folks. Okay? Y'all wasn't the mightiest. There wasn't a whole bunch of y'all. Wasn't nobody looking on y'all and thinking y'all was so great. They pulled y'all out of you know, out of a mud pit. Y'all was making making bricks with no straw. <laughs> the Lord chose you because He chose to choose you. I'll say it again. The Lord chose you because He chose to choose you. He set His love upon us because, in the goodness of His own heart, He said, "I want you to be mine." That's right. It's like all of us begin our lives in the midst of an enormous orphanage. And God, our Father, steps on the scene and says, I want you. We were too ignorant. We were too wayward. We were too unconcerned to even know what was best. And we were chosen by him. You know why I, I, I love that? Not only because it exalts the grace of God, I love it because God gets all the glory. I don't get it. He gets it. In it, as I've said on a number of occasions, we won't walk around heaven popping our collars or with our thumbs, y'all them country boys do, with our thumbs up under our suspenders, out bragging one another. You ain't going to be running around heaven talking about I was so lovely, the Lord had to pick me. I was so good, he had to come and get me. I don't know how I didn't save myself. <laughs> yeah. You think you're going to be walking around there bragging about how good you was? No, God gets all the glory. We'll spend, and I already said this, we're going to spend our first years in heaven absolutely amazed that we even there, that we even privileged to be there. But by the grace of God, we are a chosen nation. He's talking about Christians over here in First Peter 2. Now, this is a, it's a new thought, a chosen race. By the way, John 15, 16 says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. You didn't hunt me down, I hunted you down. You didn't work half your life to find me. I found you. Let's not get the cart before the horse. Fourth, fourth, uh, uh, the fourth uh, point, verse 9. You are a holy nation. So we're a stone in the building that's being built. We're priests in the same temple. We are a chosen race. A holy nation. I wanted to make those points. And I'm going to skip ahead because I got something I want y'all to hear. I want you to think about this about yourself. This is, this is very important. You know, the scripture talks about us, you know, being uh, our citizenship being in God's kingdom. That's where our citizenship is. We don't need to have our tent pegs buried too deep here. You hear what I'm saying? I'm going to say this loud. I'm going to say this for the people in the back. This is not your home. I, I, I'll say it again. This is not your home. You are but a pilgrim passing through this world on your way 
to a kingdom and a home that has been prepared for you. I want you to hear what people, how people value things. God says that you are his own possession. God's own possession. Now I want you to think about that. God says you are his possession. Let me tell you how this world values things that are owned by people they think are reputable. Did you hear recently that Napoleon's toothbrush, Napoleon, y'all know who Napoleon Bernhardt was, that little dude with the hat, you know, sitting in the picture with his arm up in his thing, Napoleon Bernhardt. Do you know that this dude's toothbrush sold for over $21,000? And it's an old cruddy looking thing. It ain't no like no diamond crusted toothbrush. It's an old cruddy looking thing that you would never want to put in your mouth. Why to sell for $21,000? Cause Napoleon had it in his mouth at one time. It belonged to Napoleon. The car that Hitler owned sold for over 150,000. Man, I could have got a Lambo. Now, $150,000 for Hitler's car. Just because the man one time owned it. The desk where Winston Churchill, one of our greatest generals, the desk where Winston Churchill sat and studied is now beyond price. You can't buy it. It's not that great a looking desk. But Winston Churchill studied at it. He sat at it, and because Churchill owned it, it's priceless. A walking stick owned by a master poet. A house once lived in by Ernest Hemingway. A bed slept in by George Washington or Thomas Jefferson. Priceless. All this stuff, priceless. Not because the things themselves are worthy, but because they are owned or they are once owned by someone who's significant. Now look again at what the scripture says. It says you are a people for God's own possession. Oh, you don't hear me. Boy, if that don't get you stirred up on the inside, I don't know what will. You talk about a feeling of dignity? You are people of God's own possession. Woo! Y'all know who we are. <laughs> you and I, child of God, have been purchased with a price. Woo! We are therefore to glorify God in our bodies. We are not even our own possession. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Oh, man. There's one more. on. The, I had got to the bottom of this list. I had got the number six, but I, I, I will talk about it on Wednesday, how we are God's people who have received mercy. If you don't take nothing else from this today, when you, when you get ready to get out of your house in the morning or start your week, start looking at how God values you. I mean, you see how the world values stuff that these people who have passed on who are relatively insignificant in comparison to God. And they value those things. How valuable are you in the sight of Christ Jesus? Ooh, y'all shining like golds and diamonds and silvers and rubies and all kind of precious stones up in here. Precious living stones. That's y'all. Start seeing yourself as this scripture sees you. As forgiven. As beloved. As valued. As priceless. As God's own possession. As those who are victorious, there's nothing or no one who can separate you from his love. Y'all beautiful. If y'all want to stand, we're going to say this prayer.